All right, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. Yeah. What's up, beer geeks? Welcome to the first Styles episode. We're not even sure what we're going to call this podcast yet. We're thinking maybe sipping with style, sipping in style, drinking with style, drinking in style. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But I'm Chris Cohen, creator of Beer Scholar. I'm a national BJCP judge and an advanced Cicerone. And I've got my co-beer scholar, Scott Fielder, here with me. Also, Hey, how's it going, everybody? Yeah, also an advanced Cicerone. Provisional, provisional BJCP judge, still got to take the tasting exam, and uh, content creator for Beer Scholar. Booyah. So, we are going to go in order down the uh, syllabus for the Certified Cicerone exam, uh, down the entire list of styles that they want you to learn about. And, of course, the first ones on the list are like the most complicated beers that we could possibly do our first ever episode about. Yeah. So <laughs> we're just, you know, we're just going for it here. Yeah. Um, lambic, goose, and fruited lambic. Obviously, we should mash those up into one episode because they're all very related. So I figured we'd kick it off by reading the actual overall impression from the BJCP guidelines for these uh, styles. We're not going to read the whole BJCP guidelines for all these beers ever in any of these episodes, but uh, it seems like maybe for the overall impression, it'll just be kind of fun. Lambic. Overall impression. A fairly sour, often moderately funky, wild Belgian wheat beer with sourness taking the place of hot bitterness in the balance, Traditionally served uncarbonated as a cafe drink. What do you think, Scott? One thing we often forget is that it's a wheat beer. Right. Like when we talk about lambic and goose and fruit and fruit lambic, we don't usually think, oh yeah, those are those Belgian those Belgian wheat beers because we think of German wheat beers and we think of the mouthfeel that it provides and the way it you know uh, changes the texture and the way the carbonation looks, uh, you know, the head formation. And so that's the first thing that kind of sticks out is like, oh yeah, like there's really a lot like a high percentage of wheat in all of these in all of these beers right yeah and i think their general overall impression is is pretty decent mentioning that sourness takes on the role of bitterness in terms of balancing these kind of sour ales that's really an important point yeah it's funky it's wild lots of wheat yeah. and yeah if you've been to belgium you might have gone to a place like Motor Lambic and, and been served straight Lambic um, out of a pitcher, just pretty much at room temperature into a glass, uncarbonated, you know, glass like this. I've, I've had it, not my favorite beer ever, but it was a cool experience, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then so for Goose, the overall impression is a very refreshing, highly carbonated, pleasantly sour but balanced wild belgian wheat beer the wild beer character can be complex and varied combining sour funky and fruity flavors so a little more going on there they've got the the you know the term funky in there which mm -hmm. you know you're trying to give an overall impression so i i can see this as being a time for that but obviously we want to dive a little bit deeper than uh funky especially once we get to our uh aroma and flavor breakdown i think pretty solid for uh just kind of the most you know kind of general uh explanation that you're trying to give right at the certified level there are certain descriptors you can get away with that are kind of general um if you're going beyond that to like advanced masters Obviously, you have to dig a lot deeper. So, you know, funky, that works at this level that we're talking about. Even at the level we're talking about, I would say like a word like pleasantly sour. That doesn't really mean much of anything. Right. All right. Fruit Lambic overall impression. A complex, refreshing, pleasantly sour Belgian wheat beer blending a complementary fermented fruit character with a sour, funky goose. What's weird to me is that they're saying that it's basically a fruited goose, but the style is called fruit lambic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it does say that. So that's weird. And so just in case you don't know, generally a goose is like a blend of different lambics that's bottled, uh, re-fermented in the bottle so that it's highly carbonated. And so lambic is the base style for goose. And a fruit lambic is basically something along those lines with fruit added. Right, yeah, when you're looking at these three beers, 
you would kind of refer to it as the Lambic family of beers. Lambic is kind of where it all begins, and then these other styles come from that base. Right. And it's pretty hard to get a Lambic outside of Belgium. Right. Scott, you actually have one, which is cool. I couldn't find one, so... Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I did and and trust me, I didn't just uh didn't just head down to the grocery store, so I had to <laughs> had to make a few phone calls. And, yeah, uh, and we we snagged one. You like had to do a trade. I asked a buddy who I'm who I'm really close with and I we exchange beer all the time as just we want each other to try like extra beers that we've got from memberships or something and I just said, "Do you want anything for trade?" and he's like, "No, like I know you I know you'll have something down the road you'll share with me and you'll get me back." And he's That's he had cool. one laying around and he also wasn't wasn't planning on drinking it, so he yeah. said, why well, not? And it's funny. I mean, we'll talk about it when we start opening beers. But of all the Canteon beers, and I had to wear my uh, Canteon shirt today uh, for the podcast, but of all their beers, I mean, the Lambic is probably the least popular. Oh, by far, yeah. Yeah. Because it's not. Yeah, sim- well, simply because I think people open it and they think it's going to be goose, and then it, there's no carbonation, and they're like, oh, it's flat. Like, that sucks. Right. When that's when that's part of the style. Right. So people don't generally gravitate towards like flat right. beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So let's let's go over the history of the style real quick. I used a couple books here to do a little research. This this is from 1990. It's uh, the classic beer styles book number three. And that kind of contains a lot of what apparently is is like the fake maybe history of Lambic. And then there's this new book just came out uh, by yeah. Raf Meert called Lambic, which is thoroughly researched. Quite, yeah. And questions all of that, all of that history. Right. I find that this is kind of common in the beer world. Uh, <laughs> since like craft beer has become ascendant and the interest in it is becoming very serious and historians start looking into these stories, it turns out that they're all myth and legend and they all go back to some like marketing attempt right even if it was one that started in the 1800s like with ipa or 1700s or whatever this history is maybe oddly similar so the fake or arguably fake i don't know history of lambic yeah (laughs) yeah the 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 potentially questionable history of lambic (laughs) you know and here's the thing it clearly is an ancient way of making beer, right? To to just let the beer get infected by ambient yeast and bacteria. And that's how the first beers were made, clearly. Right. The history is, as people have been saying it over the last bunch of decades, is like, oh, this is this ancient his, uh, method of making beer. Uh, similar kind of spontaneous fermentation methods were used all over the world, going back as far as like Mesopotamia. And that's all probably true. But this um, idea that Lambic as a style kind of emerged organically in the like Seine River area, which flows through Brussels and in the uh, Peyotenland, if I'm saying that correctly, which is Uh, like an agricultural area outside of Brussels. The idea is that these like farmers were just brewing with what they had and they created this style that eventually kind of emerged in this modern form. And it turns out that that maybe isn't, isn't very true. Basically, it actually turns out that most of the history is false and the style actually originated in Brussels proper approximately um, 240-ish years ago, all the oldest references to Lambic come from Brussels, and they're from the late 1700s. So the first reference to Lambic by name is 1783. Some of these styles and names do just evolve over time, so that's not like proof of much, right? Right. Um, but, But one thing that's interesting is it seems like it actually came from Brussels, not from some rural farmland area. What it looks like is that brewers in Brussels purposely chose to start doing wild fermentation because it resulted in a stronger beer that was more shelf stable for aging. And this sort of spontaneous fermentation was actually going on elsewhere. And it's probable that brewers in Brussels actually learned about it from like Scottish or English brewers. 
And that makes a lot of sense considering that Britannomyces was important to English brewers. They were aging beer and maturing porter in wood barrels. The name Britannomyces means British fungus. So the idea is that maybe they wanted to make these stronger beers. They wanted them to be really shelf-stable. They saw that the English kind of knew how to do that. So they started doing it too. Wow. Actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there were definite relationships, um, you know, trade relationships. A lot of the like original hop uh, growers and hops that ended up becoming popular in England did come right. from the area where Brussels is, more or less. I don't know. It's almost awkward, right? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it all kind of. We'll see how it all kind of shakes out. We'll see if this just kind of is a, a book that just kind of is here for a little bit and then people kind of forget about it and say stop messing with our history we like it how it was and that right. just kind of sticks or if it kind of turns into ipa which seems like it's just been in like some sort of like cold war for <laughs> for decades now and right. if it just lingers on and on and on and we'll yeah we'll kind of see how it all shakes out yeah i mean another thing that almost sounds awkward but which is clearly true and i think everyone kind of knows this because of the way craft beer has gone is that you know the microflora used to make lambic in the brussels area is not really unique to that area right like we know that we have all these great american and other breweries making you know wild fermentation beer that is pretty similar Yep. You know, that doesn't take anything away from the folks who kept this tradition alive in Belgium, Absolutely. right? I still think that no matter how much this new history takes takes over, it's not like those people didn't create this tradition and keep it alive. Right. Right. They deserve a ton of credit. And I feel like a lot of people are going to almost fight against this new this new history mm -hmm. out of respect in a weird way. Yeah. Anyway, another thing Raf Meert says in that book is that the name really does probably come from the term alembic. A lot of the earliest mentions of the name lambic actually do have an A in the front. And his mm. theory is that uh, the beer was just very strong and very clear, like the clarity was very good. So people kind of, it appeared to people in this era of kind of cloudy beer that this one was had the clarity of liquor. So there was some confusion there and they ended up calling it Lambic. The proof there I think is a little iffy. So anyway, you can kind of forget this whole farmhouse, rural peasants, like making beer with whatever they had concept. It's not really correct for the origin of modern Lambic and Goose, even though in a broad sense, that is more or less true historically for all ancient styles Acro of beer. Yeah, I was going to say across the board that, yeah. that's kind of what people did. They they worked they worked with what they had. Yeah. Uh, everything everything was pretty rural. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Well, it's kind of neat to think about after centuries of trying to, I don't know, in, incorporate technology into beer making, they they kind of went back around to ma to making beer this way. Yeah. So anyway, I think we should open a beer. Yes, I think that's a good. Yeah. Let's, I think that's a good idea. Let's talk some sort of aroma and flavor and appearance and and that sort of stuff. Oh, the Lambic. Yeah, so this is Cantillon Grand Cru Bruxella. I'm going to try not to spray goose all over my mixing board here. Yeah, that is a great idea. We've, we've been there before. Yeah, not fun. I've got a Hansen's Oud Goose. <laughs> Some good pouring nice, sound. Tiny, nice tiny pop. One that's definitely a little on the younger side like this will definitely pour with, as you can see, with no no real carbonation forming. Mm. So I don't know if you could see it in there, but obviously have a lambic basket, which is a traditional way of serving. It helps to keep the sediment at the bottom and allows you to not have to sit there with your with your bottle like this and saying everybody come over here and bring your glasses while i hold this like this especially right. if you've been drinking yourself i've done that before <laughs> so where i just realize i'm pouring pouring beer on the ground <laughs> and then for goose i've got just lindemann's cuvee cuvee rene nice and then for um 
Fruit Lambic, I got an American uh, producer. I had one in my cellar that I've been wanting to drink and I really think they're one of the better, better producers right now of the Belgian style Lambic variants. Very cool. Uh, Who's that? I think they're uh, uh, Beachwood Blendery out oh, here yeah. in Long Beach, California. Yeah, they're great. Um, yeah, they actually went to went to Cantillon and asked if they could put a meter that measures the temperature in their cellar and leave it there for a whole year, and mm. it would record all of the information. And then they, that following year, put their cellar, made their cellar the same exact temperature every day for a year that it was in Brussels to see how it would affect their uh, um, aging process and their. Wow. Uh, and their beer that they were making. So yeah, they're serious. That's crazy. I didn't know so. that. These smell so good. Yeah, when people would order these kind of beers at Old Devil Moon, you know, I would, I would present the cork and the, you know, the whole thing to them with their glass yeah. of beer and make sure it yeah. felt like special. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is Beachwood Blendery. Uh, they have a series called Cool Ship Chaos. Mm. Uh, and this one is uh, with Pinot Noir grapes. So you can kind of mm. see how the, you know, as we'll talk about later, you know, the type of fruit that's used has almost everything to do with the color mm -hmm. uh, of the right. beer. So, you know, so I'm, first I'm looking at Lambic. It's got a little bit of like a translucent, you know, kind of clarity to it. And it's kind of in that, the color range, you know, for BJCP, which for, you know, Lambic is, uh, is three to six, kind of in that, you know, deep straw to light amber color. Right. Uh, so I'd say it's probably definitely somewhere right in the middle, you know, deep yellow to light gold. Yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, it's not gonna be something that's as complex uh, as Goose. Right. Um, it's kind of got this uh, like really soft, like olive brine, mm. you know, kind of sourness to it. Um, olive brine, wow. Something like that, yeah. But it's starting to get a little, it's starting to get a little funky. This is, you know, this is, I believe for Grand Cru Bruxella, they, um, I believe they age it for three years in oak before they release it. Oh, wow. Um, so it's not a, so it's not just your kind of really young, you right. know, kind of one year Lambic, so. Right. Yeah, so a young one's gonna have more kind of lactic tartness and less right. of the, you know, funky Brett character. Fruity, the Brett yes. takes a longer time to develop. But this is in a really pleasantly sour, like in terms of acidity, very pleasant, very approachable, mm. you know, place I would say medium low, medium low acidity. And do you know, do they do any blending with that? I don't think so. No, I think it is traditional Lambic that has just been aged in, aged in oak for, for three years. Interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the take on this particular one. So it's all, um, we don't know for sure, but you know, it could be a single barrel release kind of thing. I wouldn't be shocked if they just blended, right. kind of just blended a bunch of three-year lambics together. So right. there's just some, you know, similarity across releases. Yeah, and then once you get into Lindemans, it's definitely a touch darker. The BJCP gives it a little bit higher of a range. It gives it gold to light amber. It's a really tight range. It's, um, it's five to six. It's definitely a little less clear, but you can get. I've had. I mean, I've been pouring some American, very good American examples of goose over the last few days, some of them uh, crystal clear and you can get, mm -hmm. and you can get either. There's a good range for clarity uh, on these styles. Right. This Hanson's yeah, this just has, is pretty much crystal clear. It's the glass is a little frost, you know, got a little frostiness on it, but it's, it's pretty clear, good clarity. Not yeah, much in the way got, ahead, oddly. Yeah, this has got really kind of grassy notes to it. It's got a little, a little bit of touch of like a rhubarb root um, it's got some uh, dried pineapple. Wow. Yeah, on the palate, I mean, the acidity is like perfect on this. Like this, like if I didn't have three beers in front of me, I would just, <laughs> I would be crushing this thing. That is delicious. Uh, but so far both light bodied, the carbonation obviously adds a little bit more of like a perception mm -hmm. uh, to that. You know, I can see people uh, easily just saying that Lambic kind of tastes a little, you know, on the watery side. Mm. Um, but that's one of the things is that with these beers, you can get to, you know, full attenuation. You know, you can have everything gone in the bottle and it can be, I mean, this is, they're all, you know, they are bone dry right. uh, in terms of finish. And so, you know, the carbonation really helps give it that sense so that it doesn't feel that all that watery. It feels like it has some body to it, even though there may be no actual residual sugar. Interesting. Because you usually think of carbonation as almost adding like a thinning mouthfeel right. to a beer. Yeah, which, which is interesting because I think it does do that for beers that have a higher gravity to them because carbonation again kind of scrubs the tongue lifts off of the tongue and so it makes them seem less 
dense, mm -hmm. but this sort of gives a liveliness to it. And since the bubbles are all, you know, kind of popping in your mouth, it feels like it's filling. Right. So, but it's, but it is, it's both of these weird, probably perceptions, if anything, you know, but it's fun that they work, you know, that way. Cause I think it gives, gives some, something to both of those kinds of styles that they need. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I've got the, uh, Hanson's Oud Goose here. It hits all of those, the typical language I think people use to describe these beers, you know, wet hay, Yep. Horse blanket, barnyard. It's super funky. You know. Do you know what year your but that sounds like you have a bottle that's a little bit on the older side and mine sounds like it's maybe a little bit on the younger side, because maybe on the palate I get a little bit of those mm -hmm. those things, but the Brett doesn't seem to have kind of turned the corner yet. And for that one that sounds like either they well or they could have blended it that way, as Chris said, these are the goos especially, those are always going to be blended years, usually of one, two, and three that's, year old lambic. That's what it that used to be the common like wisdom or you know, that's what people would say, like a a goose is a blend of a one, a two, and a three-year-old lambic. Yeah. And of course, right. once you dig in, you find out, well, obviously the blenders do whatever they think will make a great beer in terms yeah, of yeah. the blend. That's, so, that's a really good point, yeah. I don't know what date it's from, but this code on the side basically says... Oh, God, a code, yeah. Okay, we don't need to get well, into that. <laughs> it's, it's just <laughs> not marked. Oh, wait, never mind, it is. It's This was, this was bottled in 2016. Oh, okay. So there you go. So that pretty easily. Old. Yeah. Well, it doesn't take long. I've been, I've been, the ones I've been opening this week are all from 2019 mm. and some of them, the Brett has just totally, you know, has totally taken over the balance of the, right. of the aroma and the flavor profile. Right. So not surprising that you are getting really strong hate. Cause that's not what I'm getting. I'm getting strong fruit notes, mm. slightly grassy notes. You know, I'm getting things more in that realm and you're getting the but I like both of those, you know, you, yeah. you, you kind of, when you open these, you kind of hope you hit the sweet spot where right. you just get them all sort of playing together. And that's the, that's the dream, right? That's why we, that's why these are so fun to lay down and then you open them and then you're kind of like, oh, where did it all end up in the process? You know, cause again, all of these are from the same year that I'm trying from different producers and it's all different. Right. They're all so different in terms of how they've aged. It's very, it's been very interesting. Well, and, and one thing that's worth mentioning is like, you know, when you go to the store and you see one of these bottles and you think, oh, I don't know if I want to spend, you know, 10 or $15 on a little, you know, this is 375 here. 375, so. yeah. But seriously, if this was bottled in 2016 and one of the beers in it was three years old, that means they were working on this essentially, well, the oldest beer in it is nine years yeah. old. You know, right. There's a little more going on here than there is with right. your average, uh, right. you know, compare that to like right. whatever pint of hazy IPA you paid six right. bucks a pint yeah. for anyway. Like, right. come on, come on. Yeah. It seems like a exactly. steal when you think of it that way. What fruit lambic did you get? What fruit did you have? I think you got a traditional one, right? Yeah. I've got uh, raspberry framboise nice. and that's from bone, I think is how they pronounce it. You know, it looks like the word yep. boon but yep, pronounced no, bone right. yep. and uh, this one I think is quite old as well. It says best before 2021. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if that's like 10 years old. Yeah. And then I'm looking at the cork on the blendery and that one, this one is from 2020. So it's got a couple of more, a couple of more years on it, but I could smell, I was just holding the beer kind of down here, like in the, you know, if you're if you're coming up on certified Cicerone, you're going to learn about the distance sniff once you start studying for the tasting exam. I could just smell the grapes from down there. I mean, mm -hmm. I was holding it, you know, six, eight inches from my nose. And it's so the fruit, the fruit notes are still there because as fruit lambics age, those kind of fade away a little bit. And then again, kind of those fermentation characteristics, bread characteristics tend right. to take over in the balance of the beer. Yeah, in a way, you know, when you buy a fruited sour ale or, or a fruited lambic, you're really kind of not supposed to lay those down. You know, the the, right. the the fresh fruit burst of fruitiness is, you know, better when it's fresh. Yep. And by fresh, I mean, some of the beers that are in there might be three or more years old. Right. But they're going to macerate that fruit, do a re-fermentation on that fruit, let it go for only a few more months, and then yep. bottle it. Exactly. Yeah. So the yeah, fruit and then has in fact kind of been fermented out quite a bit from from this one I'm drinking. 
it's very bready it's very funky it's still kind of jammy but um yeah it's actually got a touch of oxidation at this point so it probably is quite old and i just bought both of these off the shelf from my local beer shop last week and it well and to your point in that last year was its you know best buy date uh goose and lambic producers are quite aggressive with their best buy dates some of them even 20 20 years for best buy dates so you're yeah i think you've got a pretty old one i can uh, tell that it's quite old which is which is very cool um yeah mine's again just as we kind of mentioned it's still again very very more you know very fruit forward not super jammy it's a little bit more of like this kind of dried grape note you know Mm -hmm. kind of it's it is it's very wine like for pinot noir grapes this is kind of hitting the you know it's kind of hitting that note for me in terms of the in terms of my experience but there's again there's still just these little whispers of grassiness little whispers of um just like freshly cracked like wheat grain you know wheat crack you know like you know kind of like a almost triscuit cracker yeah the goose i've got i get a lot of um I get a lot of bready malt character from from yeah. this beer. What I identify as those farmy kind of uh, wet hay, those kind of wet hay flavors, I sometimes have trouble figuring out. You know, where where does the bready malt start and stop related to right. the the wild funky uh, wet hay kind of flavors that from the Brett? Absolutely. Yeah. So kind of what we're seeing is. There's a lot of things like we've talked about before that are extremely similar. And so I think as we talk about the brewing process, you can just kind of, a lot of what we're talking about, you can just kind of lump in with one another, uh, except for obviously, as Chris was saying, when he was talking about the maturation on fruit, that would obviously be the the standout with uh, fruit lambic. And then obviously the blending process uh, would be the standout with uh, with Goose. Mm-hmm. I did actually just notice that this Bone Frambois says 2018 right on the top. So not as old as I thought, but, well, but maybe they might, not. I mean, for for fruit lambic, they might just be saying. I mean, that's not mm-hmm. a that's not a bad date for, you know, for fruit lambic three years. Right. It still comes across as a bit aged. Like maybe it wasn't stored that well. Or as a listener, if you're sitting here just uh, listening to us describe these beers, you're probably hopefully wondering like, how do, how do these wacky flavors even come about? Right. So. Uh, you know, I want to make sure we hit all the information about the beer. So we kind of talked there about aroma and flavor. We talked a little bit about appearance, right? So uh, lambic and goose, you know, with lambic, you're looking at like kind of straw to light amber. Goose, you're looking at kind of like more of a gold to light amber, right? So it doesn't get quite as pale. And fruit lambic obviously depends on the fruit. Absolutely. You know, just to kind of hit these bullets though you know the mouthfeel and the finish for these beers generally it's going to be these are going to be very dry beers they're pretty light in body generally goose of course will be typically highly carbonated whereas straight lambic will not be sometimes straight lambic i've i've had uh bottled lambic that was kind of like petalant right because it does have a little bit of sugar in it when it's bottled and it will ferment slightly in the in the bottle Let's move on to sort of brewing ingredients and process. So how do you how do you end up with these wacky, funky beers? So first of all, the um, grain bill, it's going to be like 30 to 40 percent unmalted wheat, 60 to 70 percent Pilsner malt. That's very normal to deal with the unmalted wheat. You have to do this special kind of mash called a turbid mash and the point of the turbid mash is to gelatinize and make accessible the unmalted wheat's sugars and the result is that you get this highly dextrinous wort full of unconverted starches these are like long chain dextrins and starches that will serve as food for the Britannomyces over a long period of time scott you were just looking into turbid mashing do you you, it sounded like you had a good handle on it. Yeah, so turbid mashing is essentially a form of step mashing. So you're going to be using multiple temperatures in the mash. And so you're going to, the key things are you're going to start lower than sacrification and you're going to have a little bit of a thicker mash. So the amount of water you have compared to the grist that you have is going to be lower than usual. And that's because you're going to be adding a lot of hot liquor 
to the mash and that's how you're going to end up raising the temperature. And so what you do is you kind of start at that protein rest, you add a little bit of hot water to get there, you let it sit there, then you draw what they call a turbid draw. So you take out, you know, a certain amount of it. It varies with, uh, you know, with producers how much is taken out. Uh, you know, every time you draw, you know, have your turbid draw. Um, and obviously it's called turbid because once you draw all of that word out, it's cloudy. It right. is turbid. And so that's where it gets its name from. Yeah, it looks like and milky. It's it's like milky yes, and white. exactly. Yeah. Then once that turbid draw has been taken out, you add back boiling water to, again, raise it to that next temperature, repeat the process, take out your second turbid draw, add more hot water. And then once you're going to mash out, that's when you add all of that turbid wort back into the mash, and then that's when you would get into your mash out temperature, and then you would begin uh, getting your first runnings, and, your, and you would louder, and you would vorloff, and you would do all of that, uh, all the rest of the process, and then you would sparge, obviously. Um, so that's kind of how it works. It's kind of like, you know, it kind of makes you think of like decoction mashing, but you're taking out some of the liquid instead of the mash, and instead of bringing the, the solids back in, you're, you're leaving all of those you know, liquids until the end. So there's a lot of similarities there in between those two uh, as well. Then the reason you're drawing those turbid, the, you know, those turbid draws and you're heating those up so that you're stopping enzymatic uh, activity. Right. And so that keeps those longer chain sugars that you were talking about, which down the line, Britannomyces can feed on and be able to work on. And, and so you can actually end up with these beers. Right. So, yeah, we're going to talk about the, the whole mixed fermentation thing here in a second. But basically you know, your average kind of Saccharomyces yeast strains, they just are incapable of processing those longer chain right. starches. So when they get done, there's still some food left for Bertanomyces. That's kind of the idea. So the, the turbid mash thing is pretty much unique to these beers. Right. And then the spontaneous fermentation is also pretty much unique to to this genre of beers and, and other like wild ales made in the craft beer world. I think it's fair to say we're for the most part all inspired by these beers. Absolutely. The spontaneous fermentation thing I think is very romantic. Everybody has this really beautiful vision of it. You know, you've seen maybe pictures of, of how they do it at Cantillon. They like make the wort using this turbid mash method, then they pump it up to what's called a cool ship up near the roof of the building, and they just kind of open the windows, right, and let ambient bacteria and whatever microflora just get in there and get to work, which is pretty unique. You know, it also needs to be said that I think all of these breweries are dumping a certain amount of beer where that mix of bugs just doesn't where things don't work out that well yeah right yeah so that's possible yeah yeah i i've read that a lot of these breweries are dumping you know a significant percentage of beer you know there's a reason these beers are so expensive it's not just because they take years to make they also have to dump some of it it's also why they do uh most of their brewing during the cold seasons of the year because during the hot seasons of the year these bugs just kind of ferment in a more out of control way. Yeah. So the wort is allowed to become infected with wild yeast and bacteria from the environment overnight in these like open vessels. It's not like all of these bugs are just floating in through the window, right? These rooms, the rafters, the barrels the beer is put in later, they all contain some of this microflora. And that's one of the reasons that each of these goos or lambic makers have like a house character. If you get a beer from Cantillon, you can kind of tell it's from Cantillon. That wouldn't really happen if every, every time it was just a random bunch of right. microflora, right? Right. So that just needs to be said. The microflora exist in this brewing and fermenting space to some extent, right? And in the barrels. So it's not necessarily, I guess, 100% wild is what I'm getting at. The breweries usually leave the, the wort for maybe a day in that cool ship, and then they stick it in barrels and let, let that microflora get to work. Uh, the simple, simplified version of that fermentation is the first bugs that get to work are enterobacter. 
the, these are the kind of bugs that create like a vomity bilious character. These oh, are the first. Okay, I see what you're saying. You yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. E. coli. That's what I was trying to think of. Oh, E. coli. Right? Okay. I so, see. so these are these are actually like you wouldn't want to drink this beer, this wort, for the first bunch of days that it's fermenting because it's full of like kind of like poopy bacteria. Right. So the first thing that happens is these enterobacter get in there and they work on the beer and make all these like weird flavors in it that will come through in the end in a way that adds some kind of funk. Right. Right. I think often referred to as like bilious. And obviously you don't want the beer to be like pukey or something, but next you're going to often get like wild Saccharomyces strains taking over and doing a lot of like what we would consider to be like the primary fermentation. So they're going right. to eat through all those simple sugars. Yeah. And then you're going to have lactic acid bacteria like lactobacillus and pediococcus. They're going to become ascendant. So like different, different populations of bacteria and yeast are kind of like taking their turn over months and months, right? And adding their flavor to this very complex beer. So the lactobacillus and the pediococcus, those are going to acidify the beer. And eventually you're going to get Britannomyces taking over as the main bug in there. Yeah. Once that becomes ascendant, it will continue to chew through these longer chain uh, dextrins for years and years and years. Yeah, and something that you've mentioned, you know, with the the wild, you know, the sort of wild inoculation romanticism, it's kind of the, there's kind of the same amount of control that we don't think that the brewers have that they really do, and it's in the use of aged hops. You oh, know, right. they use kind of these three mm -hmm. or, you know, three plus year old hops that they put in there, you know, so they've, um, anything that's going to cause any sort of, you know, isovaleric acid kind of character or anything like that has all sort of just been aged off of these hops. And they're really just used for their antimicrobial properties. They're not used for alpha acids or for bittering, right. really. They will contribute some, but it's very negligible uh, as the beer, obviously, as, you know, we mentioned early on, it's the balances towards sourness and sweetness instead of, um, you know, with hop bitterness. What that does is that allows that order to kind of happen right. because if it didn't lactobacillus might and pediococcus might start to outcompete wild saccharomyces but they can only handle so much of the presence of these antimicrobial properties and so they kind of are stunted for a moment wild saccharomyces gets its turn but then once lactobacillus and pediococcus have kind of worked through all of that stuff and they're like okay now it's our turn so we think oh it just all kind of happens you know yeah. they've they're just sitting there and hoping it all happens and it works out every time how what a miracle and it's yeah. like well they they kind of have an idea of how much age hops to use and some places like older age hops or certain types and so again, there's a lot more control there and, you know, they're, they're able to do it a little more consistently, which, you know, for, you know, us fans kind of does, you know, kind of takes down the romanticism a notch. Well, uh, but, you know, I'd rather, but I'd also rather have these good beers every time because if they didn't do that, we'd get, like you said, listen to all these things Chris is talking about. Like we would get some weird, weird beers <laughs> yeah. and I don't necessarily need, you know, we don't necessarily want those. I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know. The aged hop thing is another like totally unique element of making right. lambic style beers. These aged hops, you mentioned isovaleric acid. If you don't store hops properly and you let them oxidize, you will get the formation of this compound called isovaleric acid, which smells kind of like stinky gym socks, or it's described as cheesy, Yep. right? And I've had beers, I've had lambics or gooses by American producers who like probably tried to age their own hops and only did it for like six months or a year and just made like <laughs> these, these like isovaleric acid bombs. Yeah. You know, so you can do it incorrectly. <laughs> Absolutely. You know. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> these aged hops, they use actually a pretty significant amount of hops, but they don't result in any real hop flavor or bitterness in the beer. Your average beer, almost all beers, the balance is, sweetness from the malt balanced by hot bitterness, right? And this is one of the few genre of beers that are balanced more like wine, where it's like acidity versus sweetness. These hops, these aged hops, they're not providing any bitterness. They're not providing any real flavor. Um, I would actually say the touch of isovaleric acid that does end up in a lot of these is part of the flavor profile because they are so funky. There's so much going on here. 
it'd be hard to yeah. pull out just a touch of cheesy isovaleric acid. Yeah. But it works, but it, it kind of works in the same way that garlic works, right? If you can, if you're just tasting garlic, you have too much garlic. Right. But also if you were to put two dishes in front and you just said, one of them's kind of missing something, I can't tell what it is. Then, yeah. then usually the person just says, yeah, I didn't put any garlic. And, right. and it's like, oh, the other one just has it. And it adds to that overall profile. But like you've said, I've had some that are, uh, that are relative. I mean, I had one that just really was like blue cheese. It was very, right. it was this funk and cheese. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, it was extremely unique. It was one of the most unique experiences drinking beer, but uh, I'm going to ask, not, I, I bet I know which one you're talking about. I'm going to ask you after this is done. All right. I don't want to like throw anyone under the, uh, yeah, 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 for sure. But, uh, yeah. So, you know, they actually use significant amounts of these hops using all those hops does end up selecting for the desired bacteria. Right. Yeah. Because you still get that antimicrobial thing that hops provide to all beer, but right. you don't get their flavor and bitterness. And so hops are antimicrobial to gram positive bacteria, it's called. So, you know, including, for instance, botulism. That's pretty important for beers like this. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, you wouldn't be able to, you know, sell a beer like this if there was even a point zero 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 one percent possibility that it was going to have botulism in it so the aged hop thing very unique to this genre yeah. of beers and um, really at the end of the day brett is brett is the savior you know because because we're not just getting potentially weird stuff from you know aged hops we're also getting a metric ton of diacetyl from pediococcus right and also you're in this stage where there's this like ropiness to it where you know you can literally pour the beer out of a glass and it just sticks to the side of the glass and it's, it's just like slime literally looks like a rope and brett cleans all of that up even if there is some isovaleric acid left over brett is really good at esterification and it can create an ester called ethyl isovalerate which is you know fruity and somewhat pleasant as opposed to something like you know stinky cheese so literally all these things happen and then it's just like finally Brett has arrived, and now everything's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, Brett not only gives these beers a lot of their amazing flavor, but it also, like, fixes them, right? It fixes yes, all the absolutely. kind of weird, nasty stuff that the previous uh, right. microflora had done to it. Another kind of very unique thing about this genre of beers is mostly applies to goose only, but that's the blending. Because all these barrels of Lambic can have like huge variability, the blending provides the brewers or blenders to make, to like put together this, this very complex and balanced beer. Like yeah. if you were just can, drinking yeah. from one barrel, maybe that barrel would be super vinegary and maybe you want a touch of vinegar in the final beer, but you don't want much. So you're just going to use a little bit of that barrel in this in right. this bigger blend. Yeah, it provides consistency, you know, at right. the end of the day. Right, that too. Yep. That actually reminds me, the one bug we really didn't mention is acetobacter. Yes. Right, which oxidizes point, yeah. ethanol into yep. vinegar, acetic acid. The long barrel aging allows just a little bit of oxygen exchange so some acetobacter in there can create just a touch of vinegar but you don't want much vinegar so i'm just just wanted to bring it back around to mention that the other interesting thing that i i would want to mention about that whole phase of the fermentation is all of these bugs they kind of protect themselves and protect the beer by creating what's called a pellicle on top of it. You've heard about like the angel share, you know, when you make whiskey or beer, some of the liquid in that barrel is just going to evaporate out, you know, through the wood or whatever. You know, three years later, if you're going to this barrel to check out this beer, I mean, there's gonna be a lot of headspace. With whiskey making, I think you you generally top up those barrels. Yep. But with lambic making, they don't really do that. There's there's a pellicle that forms on top of the beer that actually protects it. It's kind of like a almost like a plasticky. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What, do you? It's like a film. It's like a film. It's a film. It's a film. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's kind of like a mother a on a kombucha. It's a, yeah, it's a protective layer. Right. It protects from from additional oxidation because that's what's kind of happening. There's the headspace is coming down. More oxygen's coming in. They're thinking, oh my gosh, like there's a lot of oxygen happening. And then they create, and again, they create this pellicle and then it kind of helps protect it. Right. Yeah. I've never heard of a Lambic maker like topping their barrels up. 
Have you? I'm sure some. I'm sure some do. Yeah. Uh, from time to time. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily traditional. Yeah, I don't know. That actually just kind of occurred to me as we were having this conversation. But I, I think, generally speaking, as far as I'm aware, they just let the pellicle protect the beer. That's that's my that's my understanding as well. Yeah. So okay, we talked a little bit about blending for goose. This is one of the reasons people really love goose and are just like iffy about uh, straight lambic. I think even if you carbonate straight lambic, it's never going to be as complex or lovely as a, a blended goose. You know, it's another thing that's kind of wine-like. Blend a bunch of barrels to get like this really beautiful product. There's some kind of romanticism about the blending process too, right? There's a lot of things about goose making or lambic making that really feels romantic. And part of that was that link to this idea of like a rural history of it. So that's why people aren't gonna love the changed history. It doesn't change anything for me. I still think it's amazing. I almost think it's more amazing if some business people from Brussels went to England, learned how to do this, came back, did it and made up this amazing marketing story about it and tricked yeah. people for like 200 years. <laughs> I mean, that's They're both great. They're both great. Yeah, they both have their right both stories have their yeah. own, have their allure to them for yeah. sure. It comes right this story being blown up comes right after the whole farmhouse ale thing around Saison. Right. Uh, of people being like, "Oh, Wait, there are actually farmhouse ales being made in Europe by actual farmers in like Norway and stuff. So we have to stop right. calling Cezanne a farmhouse ale. Right. So anyway, yeah. craft beer, just blowing up all this, all this mythology. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about fruit additions in fruited lambics. A lot of these brewers are using about two to three pounds of fruit per gallon of beer. And that's for the normal release. Yeah. It's yeah, that's a lot. It's bananas. <laughs> when yeah, I when I the, ordered that book, and then from, for, uh, they yeah, sent yeah, me yeah. this, you know, oh, the, loop, the, the Lupepe, Lupepe label, yeah. So yeah. Lupepe is Cantillon's like higher end stuff. The two to three pounds of fruit per gallon. Of course, it depends what fruit you're talking about, how much they're going to use, and all that. But for the Lupepe beers, it's like fifty percent more even. And there's different, yeah, and there's different barrels that they use for that particular one. I believe it's used Bordeaux barrels. Mm. So there's, yeah, so that's, they again, they kind of, you're right, it's kind of that higher end. They step it up. It's a lot less production, harder right. to find, et cetera. Yeah. I've mostly only gotten those beers in Belgium. The main kinds of fruited lambic, you've got Creek made with sour cherries. And it's got to be said, the sort of most traditional one, uh, cherry, to make these beers with. I'm definitely gonna butcher the pronunciation, but it's That's like, a tough one. yeah, it's like Sharbiksa. Yeah, it's something like that. Well, something like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a cherry from like the Seine Valley area. My understanding is that Brussels, you know, used to be a much smaller city, obviously, and was surrounded by all these, you know, farms and orchards, and the cherry that grew there was this Sharbiksa type cherry. As the city expanded, these cherries really became pretty endangered. Like for instance, the Lupepe Cantillon Creek is made with Sharbiksa cherries, but their normal one isn't because there's not even enough. Yeah, yeah. So that's just not like some production. trivia. And then, so for raspberries, that's called a frambois. So that's what I got here. Peaches, it's called a peche. Black currant, a cassis, cassis? How do you? I, I pronounce it cassis, but I yeah. I have no idea if it's correct or not. Cassis, I think apples, palm, right? And whenever, by the way, whenever you hear anyone describe a beer as having like palm fruit esters, right? They're talking about apples and pears, P-O-M-M-E. So those are the main ones. I don't know, do you, you have any others? Scott? There's, I mean, there's, I've heard there's banana, I've heard there's banana ones. Um, blueberries happens a lot here in the States. Okay. That's one we really, really like to do. Blueberries, blackberries. People like to do mixes of cherries, cranberries, and raspberries. Mm. They kind of like to do a medley. Um, so yeah, there's, there's all sorts of fun ways to play grapes. with it. Yep. Yeah. Pinot Noir, great. Yeah. Like, and, and lots of white wine grapes too. Cantillon does a lot of different stuff with different kinds of grapes. I think Vigneron is one of their most popular ones or well-known ones that right. uses uh, wine grapes. So 
I mentioned in the beginning that that we were going to go down the whole certified Cicerone syllabus list of beer styles and do a show for each one. And if you know anything about Beer Scholar, you know that we train people to pass the Cicerone exams. That's that's mostly what we do. We've got a uh, online course for the certified beer server exam, an online course for the certified Cicerone exam. Keep an eye out for some advanced Cicerone stuff coming like coaching program, kind of a course. We're still working on it. If you want to learn a ton about beer, you want to pass these exams, really increase your knowledge, get good at tasting, all that kind of stuff, go to thebeerscholar.com, check all that stuff out. And so now we've pretty much given you most of the information you need about lambic and goose and fruited lambic. But we're going to go just talk a little more about style comparisons and BJCP numbers for like the uber nerds out there who are actually signed up for the course. Thanks for joining us for this podcast episode, our first uh, style episode. Scott, do you have do you have any opinion on the name sipping with style, sipping in style? I'm personally a fan of sipping in style. I yeah. kind of like that one, yeah. but yeah, that really jumps out to me. I'm leaning on it. I already bought the URL. Yeah. <laughs> that says it all. <laughs> anyway, if you have an idea about what you think we should name this podcast, yep. you should definitely stick that in the comments. Also, subscribe. Yes, that's right. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. Let's go, let's go tell the Uber nerds what they need to know uh, for the exam. What's up, beer geeks? Chris here. We just covered pretty much everything you need to know about lambic goose and fruited lambic. But Scott and I go on for another 15 or 20 minutes. We talk about a few different topics, including how those styles compare to similar-ish sour styles in the BJCP guidelines, such as Goza and Berliner Weiss. We talk about some tricks for memorizing their BJCP stats. You'll notice that there's a bit of a ladder of quant stats for these in the BJCP. Um, we talk about ways that these can make appearances on the certified C Cicerone written or tasting exam, right? I mean, generally speaking, you're not going to be getting um, blind tasted on Cantillon, right? The, the, the program's not going to do that. But there's other ways you might run across these uh, styles on the test. We talk about some affordable and available commercial examples you can seek out because, as we know, these are not all affordable and are not all available. And we get into a little discussion about the effects of aging fruit lambics on fruit that is pitted and not pitted. That's kind of a fun one. And we also talk about some good and bad food pairing options. So if you're signed up for a beer scholar course, you're studying for the exam or whatever, you'll, you'll get that extra bonus material. Otherwise, here is the outro. Thanks for listening. You know, if there's anything we left out, you know, all of you studying, if there's any questions that you might be wondering about, you know, if you've got an exam date coming up, you know, throw them in the comments. We really, really try and keep and stay on top of those and respond to everybody as much as we can. So please mm -hmm. uh, ask away. Yeah, love that. Yeah, ask, ask away. All right. Well, I think that'll do it. I think that sounds good. First episode, we knew it would be a little messy. I think that went pretty well. Yeah, we'll see. I agree. We'll, we'll see how the final recording looks and sounds. All right. Cheers. Cheers.